Welcome to the Glister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. For more than a decade, Kristen Ulmer was regarded as the best female big mountain extreme skier in the world, and many people regarded her as fearless, which if you have actually seen any of her films or footage, you can pretty easily understand why they thought that. But the fact is that Kristen wasn't fearless, and her ways of coping with fear back then took a pretty heavy toll. Kristen has since become a thought leader and specialist of this extremely misunderstood emotion. And so in this conversation, I'm joined by Blister reviewer Sasha Anastas to talk with Kristen about her ski career, how she handled fear back then, her take on athletes like Alex Honnold and Lindsey Vaughn, and how each of us can develop a much healthier relationship with fear in any and every area of our lives. There are several things I want to mention here. First, I highly encourage you to read Kristen's book called The Art of Fear. And after you listen to our conversation with her today, I think you're going to understand why I want you to read the book. Second, there is an excellent new movie out called Voices of Fear that features Kristen and many other prominent athletes, such as Jeremy Jones, Conrad Anker, Alex Honnold, and many others. And the film is currently on tour, with Kristen doing Q&As at a number of the screenings. You can find the tour locations and dates by doing a search for Montage Voices of Fear, And we will also have links to the website and also the trailer of the film in the show notes to this episode. The third thing that I want to mention is that Kristen is holding her Art of Fear ski camp on March 9 and 10 at Alta in Utah. And there are one or two spots still available. And again, after you listen to this conversation, you are probably going to want to go. So you better hurry up and register before my co-host Sasha grabs that last spot. You can learn more about Kristen, her book, and her Art of Fear two-day ski camp at her website, which is kristenolmer.com, and we will include links to her site and the movie trailer and to her book in the show notes of this episode. Okay, we are almost ready to get going here, but just two quick things. One, we've got our second installment of the Blister Speaker Series happening live at Western Colorado University tonight, February 28th, in Gunnison, Colorado, at 6 p.m., And you are all invited to this free event at Western with our guest, the adventurer, Eric Larson. And second, we've got our Blister headquarters and showroom open house this Saturday from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Elevation Hotel right at the base of Crested Butte Mountain Resort. And you should all come hang out with us. Okay, with all of that info out of the way, let's get to our fascinating conversation with the extremely interesting Kristen Ulmer. Kristen Ulmer, how are you today and where are you today? I'm in La Ventana, Baja, Mexico. Bought a house down here with my husband. We're down here kiteboarding and mountain biking for the winter. Don't tell anyone okay. because I'm known as being a skier. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that about you. I haven't, I haven't skied yet. Well, that's not true. Oh, come on. I, I, skied, I skied in rental ski boots. <laughs> You know, on the East Coast <laughs> at my hometown ski resort, Pat's Peak, for three hours. And I took four runs, so I've skied 2,800 vertical feet. In rental boots. Blue, blue square. Oh, my gosh. Blue square. Put that in, too. This is literally the most surprising thing I've heard, like, all month, I think. You in rental God, I boots. I out. 
Yeah, but it's okay. We'll uh, we'll just keep it among the three of our three of us here. Okay. Well, listen, Kristen, we are actually joined today. I need to introduce my co-host, Sasha Anastas, listeners of the Blister Podcast, and especially of our Gear Thirty Podcast. Sasha is co-hosting today uh, for some pretty significant reasons that I'm going to let her describe now. Sasha, do you want to say a little bit about why? Well, not why I invited you to co-host, but why you would have had it no other way. I really didn't have a choice in the night. No choice to do. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, Kristen Elmer, so I I grew up kind of skiing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And again, there were not too many uh, female extreme skiers out there. And so uh, Kristen was like one of my heroes. Uh, You know, it was right at the Internet when you could like Google uh, um, Kristen Ulmer and you could see like her, you know, little video clip here. Um, and so, uh, I've always kind of, um, it, it just, Kristen has always been like a, a hero for us in my age group and there before girls were ever skiing. And so, um, when this whole voices of fear and the art of fear book came, um, to me through social media, I was pretty ecstatic because, um, I hadn't heard too much and, um, and I, and so I was really excited to see where, where this had taken her. So I feel really flattered to be here and I'm really excited to be co-hosting. And Sasha is my favorite name for a girl. Oh, I love it. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm only now meeting you for the first time and we'll start there. Yeah. I know, right? Hmm. Well, Sasha, I'm, I'm impressed that you even got through that introduction because it truly is no joke. When Sasha says that, Kristen, you've been an, an, an idol for a long time, that is no exaggeration whatsoever. And I believe, as I have understood the story, Sasha basically says that Kristen was the reason that she moved to Moab back in the day. Is that, is, do it's I have true. that? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I saw, I saw this photo of her um, in the back of a rig with a whole bunch of cams in a milk container. And then I think another photo climbing uh, a crack down at Indian Creek. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, to be her, um, clearly the next progression would be for, I was like, I got the skiing thing sorted a little bit. I, you know, things I have to work on there, like, I don't know, hucking cliffs and doing backflips, flips off of cliffs. I was like, but this rock climbing, I've never done that. I, I got to get down there. I got to start learning how to rock climb. So lo and behold, I took a year off of college and moved to Moab. And um, yeah, that, that was one of the reasons, which is pretty funny. I'm sure your mom hates me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she she was fine. I was like, Mom, it's great. I'm I'm with guides this entire time. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I'm learning how to belay. I'm really not climbing that much. It's fine. <laughs> there are some uh, cute guys in rock climbing, let me tell you. I know, right? I had an eight year relationship with one for uh for a while that I met down there, climbers. So. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know, right? A whole nother, oh, whole nother conversation. That is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> All right, whole we're going to get this back on track. But the, the point here is, is that Kristen, Sasha and I are both very, very happy to be speaking with you today. And my goodness, I mean, there is... There is so much to talk about here. We are going to, I think, just as a, as a place to get started, we do want to talk a bit about this new film, Voices of Fear. And we are definitely not going to spend all of our time talking about sort of this past life of yours. There's too much, there's too much important stuff that you have going on now. But with this film, can you tell us a bit about how this film came to be and give us your best shot at describing what this film is about? Well, I wrote a book 
called The Art of Fear. You know, after I retired as a skier in 2003, I wanted to figure out what I'd learned from being a professional athlete for all those years. For those of you that don't know, I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years. I was also called fearless and was voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America by the outdoor industry, beating women in all sports disciplines, not just skiing. So I had, um, you know, 15 years as a career athlete. And at the end of it, I felt like, wow, what, what have I learned? Absolutely nothing, right? I, you know, I learned hedonism and the gratification of my massive ego. Um, I went on a lot of trips. I made a lot of money. I became famous. But other than that, I it really didn't seem to have any value to me. And I felt like I had a host of issues that I now had to deal with, including PTSD, uh, burnout, um, some injuries. So I set on a journey to figure out what had happened. In particular, I was you know, wondering about the burnout because I had loved skiing so much. It was my life. And I just, I couldn't stand it anymore. I dreaded winter and I'm wondering what that was all about. And so I realized that I was burnt out, not on the skiing itself, but I was burnt out on fighting a war with fear. And how I figured this out is I studied with a Zen master for the next 15 years. And I um, looked into a Zen approach to life, approach to fear in general. Turns out I wasn't fearless not true. It turns out I was just really good at ignoring fear. I was probably better at ignoring the fear than I was at the skiing itself, you know, and I was definitely written about that a lot uh, in the media of being fearless. And, but it, I wasn't fearless. I was just, um, really good at blocking it out. Nobody's fearless. So that's kind of the start of it. Um, cut to you know, all these years later, I've become a mindset sports coach. I fear and anxiety expert. I wrote a book called The Art of Fear. A man named Emika, who is a client of mine, um, saw my book, read my book, said, can I make a movie about the trajectory of your life, your ski career leading you to become a fear and anxiety expert? And the movie just came out. But let me answer your question. Like, what is the movie about? I haven't even mentioned that. So in part, it's about my story, my history leading to me, me to become a fear and anxiety expert. But really what the movie is about, I had the great honor and privilege of interviewing 25 different current, very famous danger sport athletes. And for 90 minutes each, interview them of their unique relationship with fear to just see what's going on out there for people. Because I had no clue during my ski career. And so this is kind of a compilation of those interviews, what we learned, what we discovered, kind of partnered with my background and, and past, um, leading me to become a fear expert. Um, and so the, the experience for the audience, I think is just, it's very entertaining, you know, like what are people going to say next? Um, the takeaway I think is different for everybody, but I think ultimately it, it helps the audience kind of question or look at their own relationship with fear and is it the healthiest possible? Yeah, it was really eye opening, like, uh, sitting there watching Jeremy Jones and Alex Connell. Uh, kind of elaborate on their experience, like in the moment and how, um, like how they, they pick through it in that very particular moment. Um, and one thing that I found really interesting was towards the end of the film, you talk about this comfort box and how, you know, you just ever so slightly out of there and that's how you push yourself. And um, I, I've actually, I've had, I, I was able, I knew Alex Honnold from years past, um, very, briefly. Um, and, and it was very interesting. He's like, yeah, you know, I've really just stayed close to that comfort line. Um, but it was really interesting to see all these different 
um, athletes and, and what they, how they could elaborate on their fear and what, what it meant to them. Because here you are sitting here thinking they're completely fearless. So um, I thought that was one of the coolest parts about the movie. What is interesting about interviewing these athletes, much like myself during my ski career, they have no clue what their relationship is with fear. Right. You know, they, you know, they make a living at dancing on that edge. You know, fear is obviously a big deal in their life. We look to these people to be the icon for what to do about fear, but they actually have no clue, you know, and they're just in it. They're doing their sport. They don't know what the magic is, you know, what the secret sauce is. So I've literally made it my full-time job to figure out what the secret sauce is, like what makes these athletes appear fearless, feel fearless, you know, they don't necessarily feel fearless, but, you know, what is fear? You know, right. what is, is it that awful feeling that we associate with fear? Or is it something else? Like just picking that apart, like the, the, uh, the vision, the view that I have after all these years of research and contemplating this is very big. So it was interesting interviewing these current athletes and just seeing certainly at the beginning of the conversation, they would just parrot some sort of cliche, like, Oh, I don't let it get the better of me. Or, um, I have no use for fear. or I really good at letting it go. Like they just kind of parrot some sort of thing that they read somewhere, but that's not really what's going on. Right. So a lot of the interview was helping, helping them dissect what it might be that's going on and saying, is it this, is it that? And, and it was really interesting to see their ideas blossom towards the ends of, end of these interviews and um, some of the things that we came up with that were used in the film. Right, right. Like you could see that whole um, progression with Mark Twight. You could just see how it, how it all came to, to be where he was at about it. It was, I mean, that's a pretty cool experience for you. And that's got to be quite fulfilling in all your work, too, is to actually get to work with these people and interview them. Um, and and that, is essence, that, that essence is captured in the movie, without a doubt. Just even be able to uh, interview Mark Twight, it was an accomplishment. You know, (laughs) he was a trainer for Superman, for Wonder Woman. You know, uh, Hollywood basically had to beg him to do this. You know, he's just like, he doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do, right? Right, (laughs) So somehow I managed to get Mark interviewed. It was great. Yeah, it was was pretty fun. Kristen, I'm, I'm very curious when you're talking about helping these athletes, uh, as we mentioned, you know, you help them dissect fear and this relationship to fear. What are the typical responses to that? Is it something like it changes their risk assessment or, or how they assess risk? Is it that they are more at ease in these pursuits? Is it that they enjoy these pursuits more? What are, are, are there some of these common takeaways Yes. So a couple of things. First of all, I make my living uh, helping people uh, forge a better relationship with their fear. Like that's what I do for a living. I've been doing it for a long time and I'm really good at it. I was not doing that when I was interviewing these athletes. Like these guys definitely don't help with their fear, right? But um, they don't know what, like, I don't want to show the magician how the magic works. So I didn't want to, like, it was a very, touchy thing to interview JT Holmes, Alex Hanold about their relationship with fear, because whatever they have going on works and they may just totally repress fear. They may have the most unhealthy relationship with fear that you've ever heard of, but I don't want to mess with that because if I do, then next week, if one of them dies, I'll feel like I had something to do with that death. So like it was, it was very, um, 
not intimidating, but I had to be very on my A game when I was interviewing, especially people like that, that are so on the edge of death all the time. So um, the first question I asked JT Holmes and the first question I asked uh, Alex Hunold was, are you okay with talking about fear for only fear for 90 minutes? Like I didn't ask them like, tell me about your accomplishments. Tell me about where you were born. You know, I didn't ask them anything. All we did was talk about fear for 90 minutes. And the amalgamation of those interviews is what's in the movie Voices of Fear. But, you know, just getting to that point where they're willing to talk about it, you know, seemed very daunting. Like, you don't want to get in Alex's head about fear. My God. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, And in talking to him, I realized very quickly he does not know what's going on. And anybody that knows anything about Alex knows about the test that was done on his amygdala. And it was determined that it just kind of doesn't fire like anybody else's. Now, the amygdala is the two almond shaped nuggets at the top of the spine. It's the manufacturing plant for fear. Pretty much all data gets run through these two almond shaped nuggets. And it's uh, determined safe or not safe. It's, if it's not safe, it'll send a shot of fear, a discomfort, a feeling, an emotion through your body all of that. And uh, Alex's amygdala doesn't seem to fire around threatening situations. Now, there's two, I think, possible explanations for that. Either he has a birth defect, which there is one documented case of a woman being born without an amygdala once. Um, So it is possible. I'm sure she's not alive anymore, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Um, His may just be, you know, not very active. But I think that the more obvious explanation of what's going on is he has such a healthy relationship with that process, that kind of fear reaction process, that the amygdala doesn't have to scream and yell in order to get his attention like it does with everybody else. I was just going to bring up, um, you know, there's I think you've talked about it, like how some of these athletes just flow with fear and maybe they're more self-actualized than, you know, the rest of us or what have you. But it's that flow of fear that makes it work. Yeah, and I, I self-actualized isn't the the word really um, because they have no awareness that they're doing this, Fair but it's yep. okay. more that they just have a really remarkably healthy relationship with their fear is right. the words that I use to describe it. So let's say somebody doesn't have a healthy relationship with fear. You know, back to the amygdala, they may, and, and the thing is, um, this is taught, this is explicitly taught by psychologists you know, uh, doctors, scientists, like most fear and anxiety experts besides me that you want to conquer, you want to overcome your fear. You want to let it go. You want to replace it with positive. You want to rationalize it away by using your intellect. Like, Oh, I got this. I'm going to be fine. Like all these things that we do to feel less fear, it actually puts you at war with that whole process of the amygdala and your fear. Next thing you know, people are in resistance to the fear. They think that there's something wrong with them, that they feel it. Um, They see it as a sign of personal weakness. They're doing these breathing exercises, breathing in calm, breathing out their fear. Like all of these things make us feel better temporarily, but it actually puts you at war with this whole process. It puts you at war with your fear and it's being carried out in your unconscious world and that war can become all consuming. And that's what happened to me during my ski career that burned me out. I did not have a healthy relationship. I had a paradox. I had both a very extremely healthy relationship with fear and a very horrible relationship with fear at the same time. Like 
I loved it and I hated it at the same time. And, you know, can you love and hate something at the same time? Anybody that's married will tell you, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> right. Right. So, right. and I was married to fear, right? I loved feeling fear, but I also would repress it to the extreme. I would ignore it was my particular brand of dealing with it. So now back to Alex and his amygdala, you know, somewhere in there in his system, he's not aware of this. He has no idea this is happening. What I witnessed is that he has a healthy relationship with his fear and it's pretty much that's all it is. So somebody that doesn't have a healthy relationship with their fear, the amygdala is screaming and yelling and desperately trying to get their attention because they're ignoring them or ignoring the amygdala or fighting it or trying to conquer it or at war with it. Alex isn't. And so the amygdala just has a healthy, normal function um, that seems less than anybody else's just because the rest of us are at war with it. You said that you did not have a healthy relationship with fear and that that led to burnout. But I'm curious, let's say if you, if we rewound the clock on your career, kind of at the start, and let's say you did have a healthy relationship to fear as you are describing it, what does your career look like or how does it differ? First of all, PTSD. I think that we're going to start seeing more of these athletes coming through the end of their career with PTSD. You know, we're all watching our friends die. We're all watching horrible accidents and injuries. You know, it's, this happens. Um, PTSD comes like two people could have the same experience. Let's say you get mugged at gunpoint. You know, one person comes home and they're traumatized. They don't want to leave the house. They're having nightmares. They can't sleep. They're picking fights with their spouse. Like, that person has PTSD. The other person comes home and they're like, oh my God, I got mugged at gunpoint, you know, and they're all excited and it's jacked up and it's like the coolest thing that happened to them all year, right? Um, what's the difference between these two people? Well, the first one doesn't know how to deal with the emotions, goes numb around them, blocks them out, represses them, puts them in the basement, throws away the key, ignores it. I call it resistance. There are as many ways to resist strong emotions as there are people. And it rhymes, so it must be true. Whatever you resist persists, right? So that's what PTSD is when you don't deal with the emotions in a healthy way. The other person, you know, um, there is no difference neurochemically between excitement and fear. They're exactly the same thing. And if you embrace the fear, you just feel excitement. You know, if you embrace your anger, you just want to right a wrong. And, you know, you have the Rocky theme music on to make that happen. If you embrace your sadness and you cry and it moves you and it makes you feel compassion for yourself and it kind of makes you feel really alive. So all of these emotions are here to make us feel alive if we're in flow with them. But if we resist them in any way, then it's not the emotions that wind up crushing our soul. It's the resistance that winds up crushing our soul. And I actually have an equation in my book, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So the discomfort is innate. You're going to go through traumatic experiences. Um, nobody gets out of, especially if you're into dangerous sports, right? You're going to go through uncomfortable emotional experiences. And it's very hard to lower that number. And this is an equation. Um, and so this is what was, I was doing during my ski career. You know, I had the discomfort times resistance. I ignored them. Um, you know, the resistance is actually taught by our society. 
It's crazy. Like we're taught to control our emotions, which is insane. And it's what's leading to the rampant issues with PTSD. Cause then we resist it, you know, the discomfort times the resistance and actually the awful feeling that we associate with fear is not fear. It's actually our resistance to the fear. And so that I wound up with PTSD is what I'm trying to say. And that's the process by which, and then you also mentioned burnout, the amount of effort and energy that you have to put into deny, deny, deny these strong emotions, not just from the trauma, but just from risking my life sometimes every day was exhausting. You know, I would say 95% of my energy was spent ignoring fear and the rest is what I skied with. And just after 10 years, you're like, oh my God, I just need a break. And then the third thing is I started having more injuries and you see this a lot with ski racers, you know, who are fearless after about 10 years, they just, every year they have a new injury, new injury. And we think it's because they're getting older. Um, that's not it. It's they're losing focus because all of their energy is going to blocking out their fear. And also they become really, really rigid people in order to be fearless and skiing is a very violent sport. Like you don't want to be rigid. You want to be more like a slinky. And if you're rigid after 10 years, you just start to break. So injuries, burnout, PTSD, those were my issues. And it all was because of the repression of fear. So on that transition, um, your book kind of goes over the four steps of fear. And for you, um, uh, the, the biggest thing is, is you change your relationship with fear by feeling fear. I mean, it sounds so straightforward, but how do you do that? Other than hire you, right? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, the first thing that we need to do is learn how to get out of our heads around fear. So emotional intelligence right now is taught as our ability to understand our emotions and control them. So take, picking it apart, like understand our emotions. Whenever somebody has an anxiety problem or fear problem, what's the first thing they do? They go to a therapist and they talk and they think about their emotions right. and maybe they study science of the emotions and there's scientists on the job right now trying to solve the anxiety issues that we face today. And so we're just in our heads and then we have cognitive behavioral therapy to rationalize it away. Like I have a greater chance of getting hit by a bus than of this boulder coming down on top of me. Like we are in our heads about our emotions. We're dealing with them intellectually. Emotions are not meant to be dealt with intellectually. They're meant to be dealt with emotionally. The second part is we then try to control them. You know, we're all taught to control our emotions. And like from the first moment that mom says, there's nothing to be afraid of, honey, very well intended. It sends a message that it's not okay to feel fear. It's not even real, we claim, which most certainly it is. That kid then grows up to feel like there's something wrong with them. I call it fear shaming. Um, and then control them so that he gets his mom's approval. You know, so... Emotional intelligence needs to be redefined is what I'm saying. For me, emotional intelligence is our ability to feel our emotions in an honest way and have them help us come alive. And the first thing that you do to learn how to feel your emotions is get into your body and feel them rather than be in your head talking and thinking about them, which is kind of what we're doing here. (laughs) (laughs) First step. It's just a first step. How do you make it from this emotional thing that you're you're just overanalyzing and it's just running around like a hamster wheel in your, in your head to um, feeling it and, and uh, manifesting that as a, as a body sensation. Like, how do you do that? Okay. Here's the money shot. 
I'm going to tell you guys everything you need to know. You ready? Great. Yes. yes. I'm all ears. And I know that uh, who's listening, you guys are all athletes. And this is tied in with the movie Voices of Fear. But I have basically seen that there are four different ways that athletes deal with fear. And so as I outline these, figure out which one are you. And I'm going to and I'm going to list them from worst way to deal with fear to best way to deal with fear. And then um, the best way to deal with fear, I'll then go into detail on how to get there. And this is 33 years of like me figuring this out. So, you know, have at it. You ready? All ears. <laughs> so the first way that people deal with fear, which is the worst way to deal with fear, which is what we're all taught to do, which is crazy, is we resist it. And don't get too caught up on the word resistance. Resistance comes in so many different forms. Many of the ones I've already outlined, we ignore it. We try to conquer and overcome it. We let it go through breathing exercises. We rationalize it away. We choose love over fear. Like all of these are ways to resist our fear or resist having to feel it. We're in our head about it, most of all. 99.9% of us all do this. Extreme athletes are less likely to be there, but usually they have some sort of paradox going on that is both this realm and the fourth realm that I'm going to get to eventually. So that was what was happening with me. It's like we have a radically non-inclusive relationship with fear where we're really good at ignoring it. And then we also do the fourth level, which I'll get to soon. So that's, that's most of us. And that's the reason right there why we have anxiety crisis and fear crisis in our culture and why if we keep it up pretty soon, we're all going to be medicated, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's my department for sure. <laughs> it's being taught by everyone. I, I just wanted to ask Kristen, like I, I want to bring this back to some concrete examples if we're, as we're going through these four. So would it be fair to say here, this resistance to fear, would this have been in say your ski career you're standing on top of a big line and it's like, uh, that's pretty big. They kind of want me to backflip or I kind of feel like I should throw a backflip. Yeah, I can totally throw a backflip. It's no big deal. Just drown out those voices saying like, that's scary. Is that a decent example? Or do you care to give me a different concrete example? If I was more than 4% out of my comfort zone, absolutely. That's what I would do. And I was really good at it. 4%. That's a very specific number. Yes. Um, that's a number that uh, came from Mike Gervais, a sports psychologist friend of mine, um, and uh, Stephen Kotler, who uh, writes about flow states. And um, so, and, I, and when I heard the number, I'm like, oh, yeah, because three is not enough, five is too much, four, you're right. You know, it just felt right, right? Like, you don't want to, like, because I was, um, so early on in the sport and some of the things we were doing, like going up to Alaska and doing first descents all day, you know, we're skiing these 55 degree Alaskan faces that don't have a name on skinny skis. We don't even have avalanche transceivers, right? It's just, it was a crazy time. And, you know, I was regularly way out of my comfort zone. And so I had developed the skill in order to just block the fear out and go stoic and numb and I, I compensated for it by being really rigid, stoic, super arrogant, very masculine, just like the Terminator, like I will not be stopped, you know, <laughs> and it, it affected my personality. Um, 
yes, you can do that. It'll get you through a moment. Absolutely. But after 10 years of that, you start getting injured and you burn out. So that's, that's part of it. Um, I'm going to go through the next three levels very quickly. The second level is where you, uh, I guess, accept fear, which some teachers are starting to teach. Like you got to accept that fear is normal and natural. It's part of the human experience, especially if you're going to be a rock climber, right? In Moab, you're going to feel it. And it's a step in the right direction, but you're still kind of in your head, kind of cognitively analyzing something. And let me give you an example. My friend, Michael, who's a triathlete, it's like, oh my gosh, I have such anxiety on race days. Well, he was in resistance to it. And just taking the step to accepting that it's normal and natural for him to feel this, like that was life-changing for him. And that it, it flows into through and out of your system in 10 to 90 seconds. As soon as the race starts, it's going to dissipate. Like it got him through the morning, you know, and into the water. Like just that step alone can be life-changing for people. But we're only at step two. So third step is because you're still in your head, these first two steps, dealing with your fear intellectually or in your head, in your thoughts. By the way, if fear showing up in your thoughts, that's a sign that you've been resisting it. Uh, fear is a sensation of discomfort in your body. If it's showing up in a loop in your thoughts, something's gone wrong. So third way of dealing with fear is you feel it. So if Michael were willing to actually be in his body and just feel his fear, like close his eyes and just feel it, already it's now just showing up as excitement, as energy, um, as it's allowing him focus, all of that. And he's now organically in his body where the emotion lives, which is a better place from which to perform than his head. Yeah. Like, so is this, this is the part where you're like, wow, okay. I recognize this feeling. And instead of putting it up in my brain, I'm going to tell my amygdala to move it down in my gut or my chest or wherever you do that and experience that on a body level. Is that is that kind of what we're talking about here is this feeling of fear type thing? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. So see fear as a person, you know, that's there on race right. day. Like, okay, we're going to do this triathlon and uh, hey, fear, how you doing? I'm just going to ignore you. You know, I'm going to fight you. Right. I'm going to right. use my intellect. You're not even real. You're not real. And you're not real. Like you don't even exist. Right. Like that is disrespectful to fear. Fear is going to be like, hey, hey, hey. You know, it's going to be right. yelling, screaming, and your amygdala is going to be lighting up saying, pay attention to me. God damn it. It's a race. You know, <laughs> you might screw it up. You might die. Oh, my God. Right. Like it's putting you at war with this and you can get really good at blocking it out. But there are, are long term consequences to doing that. So second way is like turning to fear like, OK, I accept that you're going to be here. You're just part of the deal trying to do something kind of cool here. Um, <laughs> nothing I can do about you. It is what it is, whatever, you know, just, I know as soon as I get going, I'm going to leave you behind. But imagine if your fear, it's still kind of disrespectful, right? The third is where you're like, okay, buddy, you and me, like, I feel you, man. Like, let's go and do this race together, like stronger together than apart. Like I can feel you in my body. You're helping me kind of ramp up my excitement, my energy. Appreciate you. Like just notice how you feel as fear hearing that. You know, there's no com combative uh, talk going on and the athlete's in his body. Now the fourth level though, but before I go there, do you have any questions about what I just No, outlined? no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. I love that analogy. 
Yeah. So the fourth level is the athlete becomes intimate with their fear. And I wrote about this in my book um, and it was already being published when I started interviewing these athletes for the movie Voices of Fear. And I kept hearing that word uh, again and again, just like I, I didn't interview Laird Hamilton, but it came up in an interview that I saw on him before I started the, the movie Voices of Fear. Um, you know, I talked to Alex Hunold about it. It comes up again and again. Definitely Jeremy Jones was talking about being intimate with fear. That is the magic out there. These athletes are not fearless. They have an intimate relationship with fear, like lovers in a dance, where there is no separation between them and their fear. And extreme sports are notorious for taking people into the zone. And the reason why is because these athletes are willing to have that intimate relationship with fear. And then that fear is the very thing that takes them into those higher states of ecstasis, zone, flow, helps you bring your A game to everything that you do, makes you sharp, focused, present. It's like the best thing ever to have an intimate relationship with fear. And what that looks like in the personification talk is like, all right, you know, like the Barry White's on, you know, like you and me fear, <laughs> like we're going to do this race together, like Batman and Robin, right? Stronger together than apart. And we use fear as a resource for magnificence. So would yeah. you say now that, so, so I would assume um, after you've gone through this process yourself, um, would you say you experience fear uh, with the Barry Mantelow on? Is that, is that, you know, your everyday experience with it? Um, I would say I don't take a lot of risk in my life right now, not in sports, but I do, you know, getting up on stage speeches and all that, like, which I've had to do a lot of. Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, the 4%, you know, sometimes I've had to do bigger speeches than I'm used to. And that's been more than 4%, but as much as possible, um, let me tell you what I do in those situations. And the, and the athletes can do this too. Like one time when I, uh, was asked to give one of those speeches that was more than 4% out of my comfort zone, I'm about to go on stage. I'm about to give this very important speech speech. Big time audience could make a huge difference in my a career as a fear expert. And uh, I'm just pickled in anxiety 10 minutes before I'm going to go on. And I'm about to speak about fear and anxiety, right? And I'm like in a freaking panic attack, right? <laughs> so what I did is I, I went and found a quiet spot and I just closed my eyes and it's kind of four steps. And this is how you get from the first way to the fourth way to have an intimate relationship with fear. Um, I closed my eyes and I just acknowledged that it's normal and natural for me to feel this. Not a sign of personal weakness. Of course, I'm going to feel fear. It's very scary to give a speech. Second step, I did a body scan. Okay, what do I feel? Where do I feel it? And I, I found that I uh, felt nervousness, which is another name for fear. By the way, anxiety is fear. It's just another name for it. Specifically, it's recirculating stuck fear in your system when there's no longer a perceived threat. But uh, what I felt that day was nervous and it was in my chest and it was a level 10, like back to our equation, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So my discomfort was a level 10. And then the third step, am I resisting this? And I was, it's like, God damn it. I wrote the book about this, like not to resist it. <laughs> right? No wonder I'm suffering so much. 
my resistance was also a level 10. And it was showing up as I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. You know, I just want to go home. Right. Right. And uh, so this is kind of the fourth step where it gets a little more advanced, where I help people do this. First, I dealt with my resistance by just spending some time with it. And what that looked like is just for one minute, I just repeated over and over again. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I just want to be home with my cat and my husband watching a movie. I just don't want to be here. Right. <laughs> and, um, and when you give these personas, my resistance, your undivided attention like that without trying to get rid of them, they calm right down. And so after a minute of this, my resistance had nothing more to say. And it was down to a level, yeah, probably one. And then I spent some time just feeling my discomfort of fear without trying to get rid of it. That's the key. And I just had an intimate experience just feeling that fear and without trying to get rid of it. And again, it's kind of like if you have a child that's whining and you ignore it, it just whines louder. It may go away for a moment, but it comes back and whines louder. And after 10 years, it's hysterical. You know, if you turn towards that child and give it your undivided love and attention. We know that children calm right down and that's what happened. And that calmed down to level one. It took me two minutes to do this. And it that's wasn't amazing. like me just trying to rationalize it away or doing breathing exercises, which could have gotten me through a moment. I would have felt better. But, you know, the next time I gave a speech, it would be back stronger. This is a way to calm down and do it without resisting or repressing your fear. And I uh, gave a great speech. There you have it. Kristen, let me let me ask you uh, another concrete example, just thinking about, I, I really like the example of giving a talk. I think that's one like pretty much every single person can relate to. I'm curious about often when, you know, we're out skiing and maybe we are, we're just out with friends on a given day at Crested Butte or wherever we're skiing and I will often say to people, you know, if somebody's standing on top of a line or they went and checked something out and they're looking at it and it seems like they're hesitant or sketched or if we're doing a photo shoot, I find myself often saying like, hey, if you're, you know, if you're not feeling it, just don't do it. And that, I'm curious where that comes into in your, as you're sizing up and assessing like how we think about fear or relate to it. Because I guess in those examples, I'm just saying like, if you're hesitant, if you're afraid, just bail on it. And it strikes me that in your examples, you're actually talking about how to not bail, but to go ahead and move forward. Right. I mean, if there's 500 people in the audience and it's been advertised for months, you can't just be like, you know, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to go home. <laughs> right. Um, but you can do that when you're staring down a zipper line of moguls. Right. So um, I am saying that. But, but it's not, you know, the, there's two different examples here. So let's go back to your example where you're saying, if you're not feeling it, you know, what does that really mean? Like the question that you could be asking is, are you in the mood for this much fear right now? You know, or are you in the mood for fear at all? Like some days we just want to go and ski groomers and enjoy the sunshine and get some French fries and that's the day, you know? But other times we're like, you know, it's not enough. I need to go and do something out of my comfort zone. I need to do something that scares me because I'm feeling a little bored or I'm feeling a little meh, you know, and I want to have today be extra special and get into a flow state, which you can't do, mind you, unless you're out of your comfort zone. So the question should be, am I in the mood for 
feeling fear right now? You know, that's what are you feeling it really kind of means. And we're not always in the mood for fear. Like I had a, a client who had a kid who was just terrified of everything, pickled in anxiety. He had an anxiety disorder. He's only like eight years old. And, uh, you know, they'd go to the water park and he's like, you want to get on the, dad would say, you want to get on the water slide? And kid's like, no, you know. And what the dad was saying was, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. You got this, you know, see, it's not dangerous. Like that kid just did. And he's even younger than you. Like it's, it's called fear shaming. No, it's sending the wrong message. And it actually is the very thing that's creating that anxiety in that kid because it's making him feel like it's not okay to feel fear. He's probably been feeling that way for a while. He's fighting it, but he can't win that war. Nobody can. It's fear for crying out loud. And the thing is, it's not true. The water slide is scary. It's designed that way. Otherwise, it would be boring. Nobody would do it, right? So it's flat out not true. It's like what the dad should be saying to that kid is, yeah, the water slide is scary, isn't it? You know, are you in the mood for feeling fear though today? And then the kid may say no. And he's like, okay, well, let me know if you change your mind. But can you see that that sends a very different message? And, and it would send a very different message to your partner as well. Um, as for like getting yourself to do it, um, you know, there's two ways to get to fearlessness, the hard way and the easy way. You know, the hard way is the <laughs> radical denial of fear. And it leads you to a mostly false sense of fearlessness. And it has long-term consequences, which we discussed. Or the radical inclusion of fear, where sitting at the top of the run, you just kind of close your eyes and you just find that sensation of fear in your body and you merge with it and you feel it and you spend some quality time with it. You know, not trying to deny it, not trying to resist it, you know, address the resistance if it's there. And then what happens is it, it calms right down and actually becomes an energy resource and the very thing that kind of snaps you into a present state. But that only comes if you get out of your head and into your body and feel it. And then you push off and that fear is the very thing that helps you overcome the situation. Like nobody's overcoming fear out there, but the fear is helping us overcome the situation. It's the thing that helps us be magnificent. It becomes productive all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the I find myself thinking about a conversation I had with Darren Rolves where he and I were talking about specifically about Kitzbühel and the, you know, the downhill race at Kitzbühel, which is often regarded as maybe the most badass and scary downhill course in the world. And um, I don't think Darren would mind me bringing him up here, but he, I believe, and we could go past back and find this particular podcast conversation we had, but he would, I think, talk about it more about trying to get into a headspace where there was no regard for consequence. And I think that he talked about, and I'd be, I'm going to, I'm interested to see if this, if you have worked with specifically downhill skiers in this regard, where basically according to Darren, who by the way, has one Kitzbühel, he thought he needed to work himself up into a state where I'm, I'm willing to die for this. Like that's okay. 
I don't know how you would assess that. And again, if Darren was sitting here right now, I, I would like to believe he would be interested in your answer, not somehow uh, be offended or something that we're bringing this up. But Kristen, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it goes back to a question that you asked me earlier that I never answered, I realize, which is how would my ski career have been different if I'd known then what I know now? Because I could, I could see how that works for, for him. You know, there are many ways to get to fearlessness, but there are not without, a lot of them are not without long-term consequences. You know, I had some consequences. I don't know what his injury record is, um, but I would say that that's not optimal, you know, but if it works for him, great. But I think that that puts him at greater risk. Like imagine if um, it was the Hanukkah every time. You know, imagine if Alex Hunnell did that, right? Imagine if JT Holmes did that. Like these people are, are, you know, downhills. Yes. Okay. You're risking your life, but certainly at the Hanukkah, um, but it's not necessarily the case every time. Like it would have to be a fluke to die, but with like Alex Hunnell, that would, so imagine if Alex said the same thing that he said, like, I just got to get to a place where I just don't give a shit. Right. I'm okay to die today. Like that's not, that doesn't seem healthy, right? It's not healthy. Um, And it's, it is, it sounds like the radical denial of fear. And what I would do if he was my client is I would broker a conversation between him and his fear. And it would probably go something like this. Um, Darren, you know, uh, move out of the way, allow fear to use your mind, your mouth, your body to speak on its behalf. And then fear would start speaking and I'd say, hey, fear, um, how does he feel about you? Oh, he hates me. You know, he blocked me out. Um, he just, it's like I'm, I'm dead to him on race days. And, well, it seems to work for him. Yeah. So, so what are you doing? Are you just dying? And, like, are you, like, going dormant? Will you be denied? He's like, nope, nope. I'm keeping him awake at night. You know, he now has insomnia. I'm keeping, you know, I will not be denied. Um, I'm showing up as anxiety disorder or I'm showing up as jealousy or anger or, you know, like undealt with fear can show up in so many different ways. Um, I've seen it, you know, in order to be fearless, show up as uh, monkey mind, as depression, um, PTSD, as, you know, certainly anger issues. 95% of what we know is modern anger is undealt with fear like the kid who has a really scary home life and fear just feels so weak. So he feels anger instead because he has to feel something like it just, you know, it may not, it'll either show up that undealt with fear and as an exaggerated version of itself, or it'll show up redirected in other ways that don't even seem like fear. And there are the long-term consequences is that um, it's going to mess up his life in other areas. Seen it again and again and again. But, you know, maybe it's worth it. It sure seemed worth it for me during my ski career. But back to your question, if I had my book in my hot little hands back then, you know, certainly I would have had less injury because I had that rigid, you know, certainly I wouldn't have burnt out. I'd still be in love with skiing. And and I've fallen back in love with skiing again. Um, It's taken me a long time. Uh, I am in Mexico. I'm not skiing down here, but this season, but I, I do love skiing again. And, uh, it's taken on a completely different meaning for me. I wouldn't have had to go through that whole thing. And I also had a completely crashed adrenal system when I retired, which took me 10 years to recover from. 
So I think that I would have been a better skier. I would have been, um, I mean, I'm lucky to be alive because of how I treated fear. I would have been a lot smarter. I would have been tapped into intuition and instinct. Like you deny fear its rightful place in your life. You basically eradicate intuition and instinct, you know? Um, And uh, I wouldn't have had as many injuries. So I would have been able to spend not half my ski career recovering from those injuries, but half my ski career actually just being a total badass out there. So it would have been tremendous. So I, I, I'm, I'm sad and I, I really feel like I'm spending the rest of my life making it up to fear for mistreating it so poorly. <laughs> I don't know. I think you got its number. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wish Lindsay Vaughn had called me and worked with me. Um, I think she wouldn't have had nearly as many injuries uh, based on my experience. You know, she's classic. Yeah, her fear. name like came she, up earlier when you said something. I was like, ah, Lindsay Vaughn example. Yeah, she's, you know, I, I don't I don't know her and I, I feel uncomfortable talking about her, but I've already brought it up. So it's a runaway freight train now. But <laughs> she's a classic, like, I don't feel fear, you know, and she just says it stoically rigid. And yet um, I understand that she can't sleep without sleeping pills. I understand she has an anxiety disorder. Um, I understand, well, I do know that she's had injury after injury after injury after injury, um, seemingly unrelated, but it's that rigid stoic thing that I'm talking about. And plus, it just takes all your resources to be, quote, fearless. There are much easier ways to get there that don't have these kinds of consequences. um, And that's what I'm here to share with the world. So very fascinating to arrive at this point um, in your career. Yeah, it's, uh, the movie's cool. The book's cool. Um, I'm being inducted into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, which is a pretty big deal. Bodie Miller um, is in my class. Um, There's only four athletes. Of all skiers, all snowboarders, there's only four of us. That's really cool. I mean, out of cross-country skiers, Nordic jumpers, freestyle, X Games, like you name it, skiers and snowboarders, they're only doing four athletes this year. So it's a very... It's very touching and very humbling, you know. Hmm. Well, let's just say, though, if for those who are not already familiar with your career, just go watch Voices of Fear and you'll understand why why the induction. Um, and and I, I got to say this. I mean, watching the film, I just was like, I have to watch a lot of ski films as part of my job. I don't often spend that much time just being like, look at those fucking turns. Like literally the style, this like power and precision. And, you know, yeah, I think all the mogul skiers out there will be, you know, nodding, nodding right now. But um, seeing that precision and power coming from a mogul's background into the big mountain setting, it's really remarkable. And um, I... uh, I understand why Sasha so long ago uh, had you up on the pedestal. Um, and on skinny skis. And on skinny skis. Thank you, Sasha. Yes. Um, I want to get back to, we, we have spent a lot of time talking about fear uh, with respect to athletics. I'm very interested in how, you know, you've already said you are a mindset sports coach. I'm very curious about how your clients who, and you've said many of them are not athletes. How do they, how do they find you and what are they coming to you for? Why are they contacting you? 
Well, when I retired in 03, I started voraciously studying Zen and I started these ski camps originally called Ski to Live, um, which I ran for 15 years. They were really successful. Um, and I, they were the camp that I wanted to attend. So I created them. They were mindset only. And that led me to be a mindset sports coach. But what started happening is that people would hire me to be their therapist unrelated to sports, like 10 to 60% of my campers would do this, like help. I need to decide whether I should get a divorce or not. You know, um, I want to have a promotion in my career, but I need a little help because I seem to be stuck in this one pattern that isn't working for me. And so next thing you know, 95% of my clients were unrelated to sports. And, uh, and then I, what I realized I was teaching about fear was the most powerful thing that was the takeaway for all of these folks and, and really helped sort out most of the, like, it would be the first thing that I'd help a client explore. What is your relationship with fear? And then once we figured that out and got that unstuck and, and more flowing, their problem would organically resolve. It was crazy. So that's why I wrote a book on it. So at this point, I'm just calling myself a fear and anxiety expert. And I really believe that my ski career was only a part of my life so that I could have the unique perspective that I have about fear and anxiety that I don't think that somebody that studies it in college would ever have. You know, I've been able to basically figure out exactly the cause of anxiety disorders, depression, PTSD, like we mentioned, irrational fear, monkey mind, all these things that, you know, we're now medicating away or, you know, like we're, we're symptom control only and it's just not working. And, you know, we're, anxiety problems are only getting worse and worse. So to crack that code was a really big deal. So my, I got my book contract without having to write a book proposal. Just HarperCollins heard what I was teaching, gave me a book contract. Like, so first of all, read my book is what I'm getting at. Um, second of all, if you struggle with any of these problems and if you want to perform better as an athlete, go to my website, kristenolmer.com. Now I have online at-home courses addressing PTSD, chronic anxiety, and fear of failure. I also work with people one-on-one. -on -one. I have a ton of content to help people on their journey. Um, level one, resistance to fear, to level four, intimacy with fear. Um, it's all there. And then there's the movie, which is just pure entertainment, totally interesting and cool. Um, which is on a tour right now. We just finished the East Coast tour and I'm, I'm going to like half the locations and speaking there and um, answering people's questions afterwards and facilitating beforehand for anybody that wants to sign up. Now I'm about to do the West Coast version of that. Um, we're going to be in Denver and Seattle and uh, no, not Denver, but just outside of Denver, like all over the West um, and Montage Prod dot com slash v s o f voices of fear is how you find out about the tour dates and uh that's kind of the big picture very interesting sasha before we let Kristen go do you have anything else no i mean i'm just so uh, i'm so overwhelmed i think that uh, as an athlete this has uh, such a place in in your everyday experience with your sport you're doing as a mom, I have a little 17-month-old. As a mom and, and being really cognizant of fear-shaming, um, it has a place. I mean, it really is applicable to every single one out there. So um, it's just it's been really great to talk to you and have you um, kind of dissect it in a way that, that um, makes sense. And I'm really excited to, 
to get to the end of the book, I have started reading it. So um, yeah, I can't wait. Can I leave you guys with one story from my ski career where I got it right? Yeah. So I was going to, I'm curious about this actually. Okay. So I was invited to the first ever extreme competition, skiing competition ever. And uh, it was in Crested Butte and I was considered the best in the world. And if I didn't win, it would be humiliating. And it was best of two runs. After the first run, I wasn't winning. There were like 120 guys and 20 girls and um, I wasn't winning. I played it too safe. And so I had like two hours to think about this. And I was just going round and round, like with fear and anger at myself and frustration and embarrassed. And I felt like a fraud and, oh my God, am I about to be found out that I'm actually kind of suck? Like I was going through living hell for two hours, but it wasn't a living hell because, and I didn't realize this was happening at the time, but I was just kind of merging and being intimate with not just my fear, but everything that was showing up, my disgust in myself, all of that. And, uh, like drop by drop by drop, you become a mighty river. Like all of these things were motivators. Um, like all of these so-called negative emotions and feelings and um, were actually my motivators that were kind of building up my energy for my second run where I jumped off this cliff and it was onto hard pack and powder magazine said it was 70 feet and on skinny skis, you can imagine it wasn't 70 feet, but they <laughs> over-exaggerated and I, I wound up taking fourth overall for the men out of 120 men. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? And the second place woman finisher was like 78 out of the men. So I just slaughtered it. Won a free trip to Alaska. Like, but that's what it means to be in flow with your fear. Like, can you be in flow with not just your fear, but the frustration and your disappointment and your anger and your, you know, all of it? Like, imagine what you can tap into. If you do that, but most people, what would they do? They would try to get rid of those things. I tapped into right. it. Do you see the difference? It's a yeah. very, very different concept than what we're taught, you know, like letting that go and finding your strength and your glory and your power. Like, no, tap into your frustration and your disgust and your, you know, all of that, your anger and your fear. And that's the very thing. If you're in flow with it, that takes you into those heightened states not the radical denial, but the radical inclusion. It makes you super powerful. It's counterintuitive. Ain't nobody ever heard this before, but it works. You've given us a lot to think about, Kristen. Seriously, many thanks for this conversation. This has really been something else, and I got to go do some thinking. <laughs> right? Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't, we don't apologize around here for thinking. Uh, we, we tend to like that. So... Um, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I didn't think you were. Um, this is fantastic. Um, God, I hope we can do this again sometime because I'm going to have about 73,000 questions that uh, as soon as we get off this, I'm going to think, why didn't I ask you that as well? So, yeah, you've got an open invitation here. And if, if you don't come to us first, I have a hunch that Sasha and I might be bugging you, you know, at some point down the line. For a part two. Oh my God, please, let's do it. I, I could talk about this stuff all day long. I'm super passionate about it. And especially, you know, with your podcast being in my home, you know, with sports and it just, it's, it feels like coming home. So thank you. Everybody, it's kristenolmer.com. The film is Voices of Fear. The book is The Art of Fear. 
If this conversation hasn't got you thinking and uh, wanting to dig in and learn more about the work that Kristen is doing, I don't know what to say to you, but um, we are grateful for this time. And uh, Kristen, thanks so much. Thank you. You guys have been great. Thank you for letting me go on and on about this stuff, which I, I just, I love. It's my passion. I think it's the reason why I was a professional skier in the first place. It seems so. Well, thanks again. All the best with everything in front of you. And uh, again, yeah, we will look to connect again and talk down the line. I would love that. Okay. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks so much. It's been such an Thank honor. You. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Kristen Ulmer for the conversation. And be sure to check out the show notes for this episode on the Blister website to get a link to the trailer for the new film, Voices of Fear, and to get links to the screening dates and locations for the film and the live Q&As with Kristen. Also, be sure to go to Kristen's website, which is kristenolmer.com, to learn more about Kristen, her current work, her book, The Art of Fear, and her upcoming two-day ski camp at Alta on March 9th and 10th. Okay, thanks to all of you for listening. We hope to see you at our open house this weekend in Crested Butte. Take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.